The year was 2008. As the summer was drawing to a close, both of America's major political parties were preparing to hold their presidential nominating conventions. The Democrats would nominate Barack Obama, who would select Joe Biden as his running mate. The following week, the Republicans would nominate John McCain. For his vice presidential pick, McCain would look to the northernmost state in the country and select its governor, Sarah Palin. Just a few weeks after the Republican convention, screenshots from Palin's personal email account were posted online. The hacker, who would later be identified as 20-year-old college student David Cornell, didn't compromise an easier reused password, and he didn't break into Yahoo's servers in order to access the account. Instead, he used a backdoor method, guessing the answers to Palin's security questions. In a 4chan post, he described how he gained access to her account. He wrote, After the password recovery was re-enabled, it took seriously 45 minutes on Wikipedia and Google to find the info. Birthday, 15 seconds on Wikipedia. Zip code? Well, she had always been from Wasilla, and it only had two zip codes. Thanks, online postal service. But he did have some trouble with the final question. He continued, The question was, where did you meet your spouse? I found out later through more research that they met at high school, so I did variations of that. High, high school, and eventually hit on Wasilla High. While they served their purpose at the time, in retrospect, security questions were one of the worst ideas for security. In fact, some security researchers even got to the point where they recommended entering random data for security questions instead of answering them. Fortunately, security questions, especially as a means of resetting your password, have mostly disappeared now in favor of a reset link sent to the email address on file. As we come to the third and final episode in our series on protecting your online accounts, we look beyond the password and examine some other ways people can gain access to your accounts and some additional steps that you can take to keep them out. Today, we take a look at how to protect your accounts beyond the password. Helping you stay safe in a connected world. This is Cybersecurity Made Personal. Welcome back to the Cybersecurity Made Personal podcast, the safest podcast on the internet. Over the last two weeks, we've discussed how to protect your online accounts. The first week, we discussed how to craft a secure password. And last week, we discussed why it's important to use a password manager so that you can create more secure passwords and keep track of the accounts that you've set up. However, even the most secure passwords can fail you. If a company didn't take adequate steps to protect its data, your password might be stolen straight from the database. You could also be tricked into providing your password to a malicious actor through a fake site or a phishing email. Or your password could be compromised due to a security issue in your password manager. And of course, if you use a short password or one that is very common, your password could easily be guessed by password cracking software in just a small amount of time. If a password is your only line of defense between a malicious actor and your sensitive data, there are many ways in which your password could be compromised. 
Therefore, you shouldn't just rely on a password to protect your sensitive data. There are many ways that you can add additional layers of security in order to give your password some backup. That way, even if your password is compromised, an attacker will still be unable to access your account. So with that in mind, let's take a look at some ways that you can move beyond just a password and provide even greater security to all your online accounts. The first method is the one I alluded to in the opener, known as multi-factor authentication. The idea behind multi-factor authentication, often abbreviated MFA, is that you prove your identity by providing something more than just knowledge of a secret word or phrase. Obviously, something like a PIN or a second password could also be stolen or fished, so MFA requires something more than just a second password or a PIN or a security question. There are two categories of information that are often used in conjunction with a username and password, either possession of a physical item or biometric data. In the security world, these categories have set definitions. A username and password is commonly called something you know. Possession of a physical item is usually referred to as something you have, and biometric data would be termed something you are. Two-factor authentication would require a username and password along with one of the other methods. For example, some computers that access highly sensitive data might require you to enter your username and password and also scan a fingerprint in order to sign in. This is common at military installations and government intelligence agencies. Many phones offer the ability to use biometric data to unlock them. For many years, you've been able to use a fingerprint to unlock many of the leading smartphones. Facial recognition has also been introduced more recently on many of those same phones. However, this is not actually MFA or two-factor authentication because it uses biometrics to replace the password instead of using it in addition to a password or PIN. While a fingerprint or facial recognition alone makes unlocking your phone easier, it may not provide additional security benefits in all cases. Using an item that you own is the more common method of two-factor authentication. The simplest form of MFA using a device is a text message that you get sent to your cell phone. Many banks have this enabled when you use a new device to sign into your online banking. Since most people normally have their phones nearby at all times, the slight inconvenience of having to wait an extra minute or so for that text message to arrive is well worth the added security to protect your bank account numbers and your financial records, especially since usually that device will remember you and not ask for it again. Some security experts will argue that using a text message as a form of MFA is not secure because there is an attack that can bypass it. And while yes, it is true there is a way to defeat it, claiming that it does not provide additional security is completely false. While there are more secure methods you can use, MFA using a text message is absolutely more secure than not using any form of multi-factor authentication. In order to steal the text message, a malicious person would have to contact your cell phone company and convince someone to switch your phone number from your phone to another one that the attacker controls. Once that switch is completed, the text message with the code then goes to the attacker's phone instead of yours. Clearly, your cell phone company should verify your identity before switching your phone number to a different phone. 
You might wonder why the phone companies wouldn't try to call your phone before completing the swap. But this could be thwarted by claiming the phone was lost or damaged, and therefore a switch is necessary, and try to do it quickly. In that instance, calling the number would be impossible. Much of the data that the companies use to verify your identity would be available to those willing to dig for it, such as your email address and your home address. Plus, many attackers have perfected the art of manipulating people in order to get them to help. Many times, an attacker will act as if he's in a panicked state and he's messing up the information because he just can't think straight. And oh, by the way, he's expecting a very important call on that phone number and doesn't have time to spend verifying his identity. In an attempt to try and be helpful to a clearly panicked customer, a customer service agent might be willing to bypass the normal protocols for verifying the customer's identity. Again, it's not something that should happen, but it does happen. If you're concerned about someone being able to switch your phone number to a different phone, we'll cover some ways to prevent it on an upcoming episode of the podcast, so stay tuned. However, if you don't want to use a text message, you do have other options for MFA. There are apps that you can download to your phone that will create unique codes that are regenerated every 60 seconds. Whenever you sign in, you'll also need to open up that app and enter the appropriate code. However, do be aware, your code will not transfer from device to device. So if you get a new phone, you'll need to disable MFA on your accounts and then set it up again on your phone. This can especially be a problem if you damage your phone, as I did just a few months ago. I had multiple accounts set up with MFA through Google Authenticator. Fortunately, all of them offered an alternative method that permitted me to temporarily deactivate it so that I could still regain access to my accounts. Your phone or tablet isn't the only device that can be used for MFA either. You can also purchase a separate hardware device that will provide it. Most of these will plug into a USB port on your computer in order to verify your identity. Many also have Bluetooth or other wireless capability so that they can connect to your phones and tablets. The presence of these devices will prove your identity in the place of that text message or code. Multi-factor authentication is becoming more and more common as more and more data breaches occur. However, not every site supports it yet. If you're wondering whether a site supports it, twofactorauth.org is a great resource for learning more about two-factor authentication, finding out which websites support it, and even finding out how to set it up. A link will be available in the show notes, cybersecuritymadepersonal.com slash episode 8. If you're interested in using an authentication app or a hardware device, you can find my recommendations for each at cybersecuritymadepersonal.com slash recommendations. We've spent a good portion of our time this week on multi-factor authentication because it is such a good way to protect your accounts. But I do have a few other ways that I want to cover today, so let's move on. Another key way to protect your accounts is to protect your mobile devices, especially your phone. Fortunately, I've never permanently lost my phone or had it stolen, but twice I've misplaced it and not known where it was for over 24 hours. Our phones normally have the easiest access to our email, our social media accounts, and all of our other accounts, often without even needing to enter a password. And from the number of people who have had their social media accounts quote-unquote hacked by a spouse, 
usually to post complimentary messages about themselves, you can see how easy it would be for someone to access your accounts from your lost or stolen phone. There's two ways that you can help keep your accounts from being accessed. First, set up a PIN or a password on your phone. A PIN will keep someone who gets your phone from being able to make posts, send messages, or view your private data. It's certainly possible that someone could guess your PIN eventually, but it will protect your accounts at least until you realize that your phone is missing and you're able to reset your passwords. The second method to protect your phone is to enable remote wipe or automatic wipe for it. Both Android and iOS offer options to completely wipe all the data on your phone and reset it to factory settings. To do this, you must set it up with a Google or an Apple account. On iOS, you can also enable an automatic wipe if your PIN is entered incorrectly 10 times in a row. This keeps someone from being able to take unlimited guesses at your PIN. Once the 10th wrong guess is entered, the phone begins deleting everything. If you have an Android phone, there isn't a built-in setting to do this, but you can use an app to do the same thing. If you'd like my app suggestion, you can visit cybersecuritymadepersonal.com recommendations. So after you've enabled multi-factor authentication and you've protected your phone, you'll also want to check where you are signed into your accounts. Most sites will now tell you every device where you are signed in and still have an active session. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google are just a few of the major sites that allow you to see this. If you do lose a device, you can go here to deactivate its access. A remote wipe is still a better option if you know that your phone is gone, since you know that will revoke access for all of your accounts. But if you just think you've misplaced your phone, but you're pretty sure it's somewhere around the house and therefore you don't want to do a remote wipe right now, Revoking access on some of your most used accounts will help you protect them. However, it's a good idea to check where you're signed in even if you still have all of your devices. If someone managed to compromise your password, it's possible that person just signed in and is waiting to monitor what you're doing in the hopes of gathering more data. Or a computer might have tested stolen credentials to see if they're still good, but no one's actually done anything with those login details yet. This could help you expose that access and shut it off before anything more malicious happens to your account. A fourth way to protect your account is to watch your security questions. As I mentioned in the introduction, security questions did serve a purpose at a time when not everyone used email accounts. But now, they've just become an easy way to bypass the password altogether. Many security experts have even suggested that people enter random information instead of an honest answer, since almost all of the questions you can choose are things that someone could probably find out about you online. While security questions have mostly gone the way of the dodo bird, you're still likely to encounter them occasionally. My suggestion is to craft a long response to the question that is unlikely to be guessed. For example, one common security question is, what is the name of the street where you grew up? If I'd grown up on Turkey Foot Road, which is a street not far from where I live currently, I might respond with something like, I grew up on Turkey Foot Road, gobble, gobble, gobble. I can save that answer in my password manager, so the answer is readily available for me to copy and paste if I need it, 
But even if a friend from my childhood who knew that I had grown up on Turkey Foot Road tried to guess the answer, it's incredibly unlikely that he would be able to guess that exact response. So until we can put security questions fully into the dustbin of history, making your answers long and complex, just like you do with a password, is the best way to keep your account secure. The final way to protect your accounts is something that I've only seen available on Facebook so far. In the event that your Facebook account is compromised and the email associated with it has been changed, Facebook offers a final way for you to regain access to your accounts, the trusted contacts. Facebook's trusted contacts feature allows you to specify three to five friends that you can count on to help you regain access to your accounts. If you discover that your account has been hijacked and you no longer have access, you can contact the people you specified as trusted contacts, get a security code from them, and then enter three of those codes into Facebook in order to regain access. And one final comment related to protecting your accounts. If you have an account that you don't think you'll need anymore, the best thing to do is to close the account and delete all your data. Once again, if you're using a password manager, you can plan 15 to 30 minutes once or twice a year to just look through the list and determine if there's any accounts that you need to shut down. So how can you keep your account safe even if your password does end up compromised? The best way is to use two-factor authentication, whether it's through your phone or through a separate device. Then, keep your phone protected so that people don't automatically have access to your account if you lose it. Next, make sure you're not currently signed in anywhere you don't recognize, especially a public or a shared computer. After that, check on websites that still use security questions, and make sure your answers are long and complex, just like I hope your passwords are. Then, consider using Facebook's Trusted Contacts feature. And finally, if you don't need an account anymore, delete everything so that there's nothing left that can be stolen. So that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening, and be sure to join us right back here next Monday as we discuss the topic, How to Protect Your Remote Meetings. Until next time, stay safe. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Cybersecurity Made Personal Podcast. For more information on today's topic and a transcription of this episode, check out the show notes page, which is linked in the description. If you enjoyed the show, we would love it if you would subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. While you're there, we would also appreciate it if you could take the time to rate and review the show. It really does help us get noticed. Cybersecurity Made Personal is provided for educational purposes only. Please do not take any action on your computer, phone, or other device unless you fully understand what you are doing and the possible consequences. Visit cybersecuritymadepersonal.com slash disclaimer for more information. Cybersecurity Made Personal is a production of Personal Cybersecurity, LLC. I'm Jim Herman. Thanks for listening, and stay safe.